Welcome to the Onassis Air Conversations. My name is Mirto Katsimicha. I'm a curator and cultural worker based in Athens and your host in this series of recorded encounters with the participants of Onassis Air. Founded on the principles of learning and doing with others, Onassis Air is an international research residency program in Athens initiated by the Onassis Foundation in 2019. They say that what happens in one place stays in that place. I cannot find a better way to describe all the things that have been happening inside the Onassis Air House since I first entered as a participant of the Critical Practices program in fall 2019. The truth is, it is not easy to transmit an open-ended process of relationing which is very personal and relevant to a specific place and moment in time. How can I then give you a glimpse into that process? Everything starts with a conversation. Throughout this series, I'll be speaking with the Onassis Air participants to shed light on their artistic practices and needs, as well as to reflect on ways of being and working together. In this conversation, I am very happy to welcome Virgil B.G. Taylor, With a background in public history and fine arts, Virgil's interest focuses on time and history, and especially on moments of transition and histories of crisis and care through the use of various artistic media, including printmaking, film, and installation. Virgil is a participant of the School of Infinite Rehearsals Movement 6, with a collective research focus on modes of governance, through the lens of institutions. Today, we discuss, among other things, about the notion of exclusion and access in instituting otherwise. Virgil, welcome to Room. Thanks, Mirta. It's really, really nice to be here. <laughs> um, I'm very glad to be sharing the room with you today, and I'd like to start our conversation by introducing a bit your practice. You're making a lot of things. You make zines, posters, as well as videos and installations. You also write a lot, and you're involved in various communities that fosters practices of sharing, studying, exchanging, and thus strengthening from within. And my question is, what is the thread that binds all these different practices together? Um, well, that was very generous, because um, <laughs> I don't know if there is a thread. Um, but if there is one, it's probably um, studying or studies or study as an activity. Um, that's something that really emerged with my collaborative practice with Ashkan Sapavand, which we have named... Um, s- or 13 S's, one arbitrarily capitalized, um, where we really focus uh, quite intently on the question of study. But in general, I think as someone who moves between um, installation and images and video, but also writing and research, the question of study and ca- creating the conditions for reading more broadly, but study in particular is something that I try to organize my um, practice around. After my bachelor's, I was living in New York and um, ended up working with a community called What Would an HIV Doula Do? Um, which is a community of a wide variety of practitioners, all, all of us were kind of organized around this question, which we use of what would an HIV doula do to 
think about and focus on questions of care um, in the context of an ongoing epidemic. And, but a lot of what I took from that experience was this kind of studying of history and, and really being a student of history and learning not only from history as a kind of thing in the past, but as something that's around us in the present and that it's something that um, people who you can be close with and speak to have experienced directly and and something that has marked the spaces that we move through. And so I really learned to study in a really broad sense when I was living in New York and working with WWHIVDD. So I would say study, and that's something that um, is something I do a lot with my zine projects where I'll take kind of some broader topic or very, very minor topic and study it and visit archives online or in person and collect images and reflect on it and build a text or um, in my recent project in New York where I created a kind of exhibition space dedicated to having a spot for people to stop and study a text that I prepared as a, as a reflection on the materials I had studied to produce the exhibition. Or like uh, the study object room that uh, you made at Studio Voltaire. That's a perfect example where like um, I was invited to organize what was I think initially intended to be a pretty straightforward reading group um, and instead I created it as a series of invitations where I asked uh, friends and colleagues who I already kind of so to speak study with um, maybe in informal settings to formally bring a text they're interested in read it together and then discuss it with a, a, a group of audience members from online and there the kind of title of study object room um, it's both a list of the kind of the activity, the thing and the space, but also this idea of like a study object, I think is really important to me. Um, and is basically kind of every, everything that I do is around, around the kind of question of like a study object, um, whether it's making one or engaging with one. Um, I'm glad that you bring up uh, these examples on the notion of study, because that takes me to my next question that has to do with language. And I think that language plays a pivotal role in your practice, either through your own writings or through the setup of these collaborative situations or reading groups. And um, language for me is a primary way of constituting ourselves and constituting the way that we relate to the world that surrounds us. And by constituting, we're also instituting a way of relating. So for me, language is an institution. And I'm wondering, how do you perceive your relation with uh, language? I'm interested in both the way that language like can communicate and can contain information um, or present information or move information through a text um, and, and how that process is not necessarily a purely kind of nice thing, that it also can be implicated in processes of ex extraction or other kind of forms of violence that happen when you move a thing from one place to another. Um, but that also how language is a thing in itself and that, um, you know, that words in both in their written form and in their spoken form have a shape and a color and a texture of their own and can be treated like, um, material like paint or, or, um, or, or, or in their musical qualities. And so like in working as an artist who works with language, I have the, you have this kind of rare opportunity of, 
of something that's always working on multiple registers already, that like language is always already communicating, but also always already a material. And so you, you can think about it, you, the kind of way of moving between different registers is something that happens really naturally with language. And I think that's become really exciting for me. And so I thought about it in terms of like explaining my practice, because also like, um, when you really begin to think about language as a material, then even the act of articulating oneself becomes like a space of artistic activity. And I think that's really exciting. Thinking of uh, language as also a mode of representation, I'm also uh, thinking about its restrictions, like whose voices are being heard or how can we speak for those whose categories we do not inhabit. And speaking of institutions, how do we institute otherwise? And I'm wondering if you have encountered these kind of questions in your practice, um, especially about uh, the voices. I remember that you, uh, in your application, you uh, talked a lot about the notion of uh, exclusion or being included and how Ahmed inspired you. I think one uh issue that's been really important to me and something that I've been thinking a lot about in terms of my own kind of subjective position within it is the kind of um, the basically the uh, the treatment of Palestinians in um, Germany as part of Germany's kind of broader self-understanding of its response to anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism and its kind of conflation of those things and so in the last couple of weeks, there was a series of events in Berlin that were canceled by the authorities because they were uh, the authorities basically said that there was that they were that they were not it was not possible for a group of Palestinian groups to commemorate the Nakba and um, a Jewish group to commemorate or to honor the the life of a of a journalist who was murdered in Palestine. You know, what I appreciate about also Sarah Ahmed's work and why I think I quoted her in the application and I continue to think about her writing is that um, she moves really helpfully between the kind of registers of the kind of spectacular and political and the intimate and personal. Um, you know, so the text that I was referencing in the application is when her writing about um, what happens when you kind of push back uh, against um, forms of exclusion that happen in the kind of professional space. Um, but that that kind of experience is deeply related to like broader systemic things in her writing. And so, yeah, so I think that like, as um, as a as a Jewish person who's moved to Germany from the US, I experience simultaneously, this kind of forms of active inclusion in the German context, well as also experience forms of exclusion, but also the same time see exclusion from Germany and from German society carried out, so to speak, in my name, um, but in a way that often, even though it, even though the people who are seeking to include me by excluding others end up excluding me, so I think that's why I brought up this thing that both events organized by Palestinians and anti-Zionist Jews were banned on the same weekend in Berlin, because you see this kind of complex layering of exclusion and inclusion and understand that 
that those sorts of actions are always are always bound up in each other. Um, but I think it's uh, important to to keep uh, this question that you have you had posed before. What is made exclusive in the project of inclusion? Mm. I think that resonates a lot with what you just described um, from your the recent events that happened. Speaking of this notion uh, between of inclusion and exclusion, um, I'm thinking also about the inside and the outside of the institution that uh, we tend to refer to. And I feel that um, if we want to institute a change, this change needs to happen from a space in between instead of, you know, either the inside or the outside. And I'm wondering if you see this transformative potential and if so, where does that lie for you? I think... You know, the thing that comes to mind is that, like, the space between is also neither. <laughs> um, like, it, the, it, you, it, it is both neither and both. Um, and I think... Um, I think a lot of time change doesn't happen when people hold on to a position. Um, when people become attached to being either inside or outside. And... I think the potential of the in-between is also recognizing that one might end up losing that previous position um, or embracing the kind of reality of not having either of those positions and kind of finding power in that position. Um, but yeah, so I think right now where I go to is really the position of neither, of kind of losing the, of losing the institution entirely. Not in the sense of like, of, of like um, even actively working to end the institution per se, but also beginning from a place, beginning already from a place where that institution does not exist in its current form in that in-between and then working from there to kind of produce that vision for the world from a position of like vision to kind of already be looking beyond it, um, to already have an abolitionist orientation towards the kind of if it's an institution of a, like an, of oppression that like to have an abolitionist approach of like kind of believing firmly in its non, non necessity and non-existence and moving from there, that's like the potential of the in-between. Um, and what I like about the in-between is this also this other in-between of yeah, both and neither. Um, and, you know, it can be the bringing together of both inside and outside, but also then working together on this neither position of this, like, the new thing being a kind of a real revolution uh, or revolutionary possibility. I like this uh, neither and both. It's, yeah, uh, paradox, it's a paradox to, to bring them together. Yeah, but you have this kind of, yeah, this like dialectic and this kind of oppositional potential of like, yeah, I don't know. It's like a kind of, it's like a very, it feels like, a, as I was talking, I was like, this is a very like lovey-dovey version of nihilism, basically, but mm -hmm. like, but not really nihilism, because there is also the potential, there's not that there's no potential in both, but it is like, recognizing the proximity of both inside and outside to neither, I think is really where the, as you said, the transformative potential comes from. I'd like to close our conversation with, um, a quote by Sarah Ahmed that uh, is also an inspiration for you, as you mentioned, uh, where she says that the very labor of transforming institutions, or at least aiming for tra transformation, is how we learn about institutions as formations. 
And I think that in your recent exhibition at the Artist Space in New York, titled Minor Publics, you attempted that by revisiting a work by Sola Wheat and further explored the boundaries between art and memorial. And to sum it up, um, I think that the constitution of memory is also part of the process of instituting. And I'm wondering if this notion of memory, um, how does this notion of memory resonate with you? Um, my exhibition project in New York was focused on this work by Lewitt called Black Form Dedicated to the Missing Jews, which was originally commissioned as a temporary sculpture for the Munster Sculpture Project in 1987. And then when Lewitt was preparing the work for the exhibition, he decided to change the title to its current title, which um, in that linguistic trans change transformed the function of the artwork from being simply an, a temporary public artwork to being what was then understood as a potential memorial, which meant that the community in Munster of both the citizens, but also of the different institutions who um, had control over this sculptural object, it changed the way they reacted to it. And it ended up being deinstalled and then purchased by a different German city, Hamburg, as a memorial, um, where it kind of still stands today. And I, in thinking about your question, what comes to mind particularly is that, is the title of the work. Um, Lewitt uses this formulation of dedicated to the missing Jews, which in interviews and in and looking at other works that he made on this topic is referring to the um, generations who didn't come after, um, whether because the families were murdered by um, the Nazi party during World War II or they left Germany and so that there's this absence that he's referring to. So it's like uh, he's using the language to go back to our previous discussion to fill in these gaps. Yeah. So, you know, the, what's interesting is the artwork doesn't change its form when he changes the title. Like, he'd already been planning this the, the, this, this sculpture as, it's, as it was constructed. He just changed the title. You know, and there's all these, you see all these kind of institutional practices that kind of try to handle this change, you know, most notably the catalog for the Munster Sculpture Project doesn't acknowledge the title. The catalog essay doesn't acknowledge the title of the work. It's mentioned in the captions of the images, but the body of the text doesn't address the title or the um, topic implied by the title. And I've seen a letter from the author of that essay apologizing that no one told him that the title was changed, which um, unfortunately I wasn't able to a, the author passed away and the other, the, the curator who's still living didn't answer my requests for more information. So I'm not quite sure about the truth of that misunderstanding. But um, I think for me, the, the gist of what is interesting about also this gesture of the, of the particular language of, the, of, of absence that you see in Lewitt's work and what it says about how memory is a part of the process of instituting is that it's, Memory is something that's oriented to the past, but it's also really a, an aspect of the present. Um, and so, like, um, when memory is absent in the presence, in the present, what can be instituted from memory is different. So, like, the absence of a memory is also something. It's not only the what memory brings from the past to the present, but it's like what memories are even there to bring things forth. 
is really, I think, a critical part of the question of of the relationship between memory and institutions. Um, and yeah, and I think the way, what I really learned from doing this project in New York was um, how important it was that LeWitt was pointing to this absence. Um, and one kind of happy thing that happened as I was preparing the exhibition is that um, the I was able to borrow a, a, a sketch of LeWitt's sculpture from the LeWitt estate, um, which was really amazing to have that kind of piece of of the archive present in the exhibition. And I was um, gifted really generously a new book about LeWitt um, by the estate, um, which is this book called Locating Saul LeWitt, which was edi edited by the scholar David S. Arford. And David Arford wrote an essay in Locating LeWitt. That essay, I think, said a lot of the things that I had suspected about his attention to absence and how even though LeWitt had spent many decades kind of explaining that his art had nothing to do with content and was a purely formal thing that when he did kind of address this quite intense um, contextual subject matter that he felt it very deeply. Um, so yeah, so I can really recommend that essay in locating Saul LeWitt. Well, thank you, Virgil. Can you walk us through the exhibition? Talk a little bit about the works. Yeah, so the exhibition um, Minor Publics is uh, structured around what I call a script, which was this text called Bima, um, which was a, a 4,000 word essay that I wrote in part in Athens at the Onassis Air. Um, <laughs> uh, and the title Bima is actually something I learned when we did a trip to, learned more about or kind of re-encountered when we did a trip to Thessaloniki. And I learned that the Greek word for altar, vima, is is the same word originally as the Hebrew word bima for stage or altar. And I really began to think about Lewitt's sculpture in terms of being a tribune or a stage upon which one speaks or reads or engages. And so for the exhibition, this I, I took this text that I prepared and made it the center by putting it on a table with chairs for people to read at. And then I created a series of... Uh, graphic interventions, some of which were these quite large scales, vi vinyl billboard size prints, and some were smaller inkjet and um, offset printed objects that kind of surrounded the the space for reading to kind of when pulled quotes from that text to kind of create a condition where the text can be encountered both in its full form as a, as a linear thing to be read, but also fragments of it were available in different ways. And then as a thread through those works, or a series of images, this drawing by Lewitt of the sculpture, a photograph of its demolition from the 80s, a photograph I took in 2021 of the um, sculpture from a point of view that it's often not depicted, um, where it looks quite diminished and small, and last, a small archival postcard of the uh, Kaiser Wilhelm uh, monument that stood on the site that Lewitt selected for his um, installation in the 80s. It was this kind of space for study and there were different ways to access it and then the exhibition also extended to the outside of the gallery where we, we pasted some of the posters onto the onto the, the outside wall of the gallery and other art aspects of it faced the window. So I wanted to create different levels of intensity with which one could encounter it so that you know the expectation wasn't that the only way to understand the work is to read all 4,000 uh, 
to be honest, quite fragmented and strange words that I wrote. Um, but also there were other ways to kind of approach it. Um, but the texts and images are all available at the Artispace website and you can download a PDF and it's formatted in two ways. One is in this large kind of A3 sized um, gray format and one in, in an A4 format that's a little bit more uh, legible or easier to kind of read if if the the larger scale formatting is a bit awkward for you. So yeah, so there's like a different ways of accessing it there. And, um, and there's also a book that um, we produced called Fag Tips or Artist Space, where I commissioned around 10 different essays kind of responding to a prompt that emerged as I was doing the writing for um, my own text. My text is really trying to think through the difference between an artwork and a memorial. And I realized in running that, that I had a question, which is like, well, what is an artwork? And I uh, propose that in a somewhat abstracted way to uh, colleagues and people I work with um, and friends um, and ask them to think about what constitutes an artwork. And so that um, book is available from Artist Space um, as well. Well, it seems that you created a lot of entry points for the audience uh, <laughs> to fill in these absences that we were talking about. And uh, it's been a pleasure to to talk with you today. Virgil, thank you so much for our discussion. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure and an honor. Thank you for listening. If you want to listen to more conversations, please subscribe to our channel. You can find more about the UNASSE residency program and each participant at www.onasses.org. This series is produced by UNASSE Thanks to Nikos Kolias, the sound designer of the series, and to Nikos Liberis for providing the original music intro theme. <laughs>